live and in color from the NBC News Radio Broadcasting Studios of KCAA, 1050 AM, 102.3 FM, and 106.5 FM, located in beautiful Southern California and in parallel from the Turfs Up Radio Studio in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Thanks for tuning in to the Water Zone Show this evening. Good afternoon to everybody across the United States and beyond. Hope everybody's having a great day. Uh, I'm Rob Starr, along with Mr. Chris Davies, and we are the host of the Water Zone Show. So thanks for checking in with us. And Chris, how are you doing today? All right, Dan. I got to tell you, Rob, you there in Phoenix, you are sending us some monsoonal weather here, buddy. It is cloudy. It's still hot, but it's cloudy today, and we've gotten some rain uh, up in the mountains. That traditional you know, early mid-summer high that sits over the Four Corners area has now shifted south on the uh, Arizona-Utah border right there, and we're getting some of your clouds. Uh, well, it, it started about 4 o'clock in the morning, thunder and lightning, and then it came down pretty hard. It stopped about 7. Uh, it's been semi-cloudy the rest of the day. They we're supposed to have some more rain tonight and continuing. They said cloudy skies all week, but 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 we'll see some storms coming. It's not as bad as I see in other parts, more uh, east of me, at the east end of Phoenix. I mean, I'm, I'm 30, 40 miles west of Phoenix, but uh, going going the other direction, it seems they get floods and all kinds of stuff. I haven't seen that here, so I guess I'm lucky and blessed for that. Uh, you know, somebody, somebody who lives in uh, Middle California, Ms. Chris Austin, and uh, she, she's on. She's the purveyor of Maven's Notebook. Do you see any flash floods or bad weather up by your place? Um, I did not see it here, but north of us, uh, they actually they had some severe thunderstorms that came down. You know, we had that fire, the McKinney fire. That's at the up at the border by the you know Northern California Oregon border, and that's been uh, uh, it's been going pretty hard it's i think it's the biggest fire of 2022 like i'm looking here 57,000 acres and they had rain on uh downpour on the fire the fire's still going and it kind of helped slow the growth of the blaze blaze but it triggered flooding and mudslides and parts of the burned areas it was pretty ugly um here we had a uh, one day where it was nice and cloudy, we even had some some a little bit of rain. Unfortunately, just enough to make a mess out of your car. But uh, but yeah, it was very nice and pleasant. And today we're back up over 100 degrees. It supposedly went to 102. It's going to go down to 82 tonight. I was hoping this week we were going to show. I guess you guys know I do a. I have a video equipment and a sound system, and I go bring it to our one of the parks here, and we do uh, video concerts. And we were going to do the Eagles on Friday, depending on the weather. Uh, if it continues to be rainy and windy, I'll have to postpone it till, till the week after. And then we're going to do, uh, I don't know if you guys like uh, sort of soft jazz and, and, and funk and stuff. There's a guy uh, named Brian Colbertson. I don't know if either of you have heard about him or know of him. And I have a two-hour uh, concert video from him, so we were going to do that the next where everybody comes out, brings the chairs, brings some hors d'oeuvres and wine and whatever, and everybody uh, has a good time for a couple hours. So uh, the weather is causing a, a delay in a lot of that, so uh, can't can't work on that. But what's going on in the water world? you got to fill this in. I mean, I read everything, but you've got more detail than uh, what you put in there. 
Well, I think one thing interesting that's going on is that they had a boat that burned in the river in Sacramento, and they finally uh, got the boat removed. The boat was, I, I believe, it was moored um, by one of the parks there in Sacramento. It had been there for a while, and uh, they they uh, the county of Sacramento petitioned the State Lands Commission for some money to remove the boat, and so they finally removed the boat. But it's drawing attention to a problem that uh, that we have in the Delta and really elsewhere in the state, and that is abandoned boats. You know, when people have a boat and they can't afford it anymore, uh, um, you know, a lot of times boats get dumped. Or maybe they're, they were, you know, docked somewhere and they, they came loose and they floated off somewhere and they flooded or whatever. Um, it's, you know, it's a real problem in the Delta. There are just a lot of abandoned boats uh, all over the Delta. And another problem that they have, I, I don't know if they still have it, but uh, I guess there, there are boats that are owned by the authority that, you know, that takes boats away from people. Like, I'm not sure, you know, who that is, but they periodically, they have all these uh, barely functioning vessels and they auction them off and people pay like literally $10 to have this boat that's barely, <laughs> barely waterworthy. And, but they, they, buy them for nothing, and they take them out in the Delta, and they generally end up crashed and flooded. Um, what This is, uh, they also get used for, you know, cooking up drugs and other things. Uh, so there's just a lot of uh, old abandoned boats either wrecked or moored places where they've been moored for a long time. It's a real issue in the Delta, and it's also an issue elsewhere. There are some, I believe there's a spot off the coastline somewhere, a boat crashed on the rocks, and it's it's still there. Uh, so, you know, there's, it's, there's a lot of hazards uh, by these abandoned boats. For one thing, you know, they're leaking God only knows what into the water that we use for our cities and our farms, you know, oils, other chemicals. Uh, they're a hazard to other boaters in the area, especially if they're uh, sunk in, but uh, in shallow water and you can't see them. So, it, I mean, it's a real problem. So they've, uh, there's some legislation that they have proposed to provide some funding uh, for localities to start removing these boats. Uh, they've tried this before. I don't, I don't think it passed. So hopefully... You know, with this boat having been prominently, you know, visible in Sacramento, where the legislators are, hopefully that will help uh, provide some funding. Uh, you know, I, I I never owned a boat, but uh, it's my understanding that boats, just like automobiles or vehicles, have to be registered. So, isn't there a way that they could trace the registration of who owns it, or who then that way they can find out who dumped it and go claim something with those people? And you know, yes, that yes, they could, but it's generally felt that uh, it's not worth it because the most of the time, the people that have you know dumped these boats, uh, 
they don't have the means to to do anything about it oftentimes and some of these boats have been there for so long <laughs> who knows where the owners are you could spend a lot of time trying to track down people uh that and probably end up with not much to show for it if you know you can't find uh, if, if they have no money to take care of it, and, and those boats that are bought by you know the people for ten bucks to to cook their mess on that crash on the shoreline, you're not going to get any money out of them. So it's long been felt that the best way to address this is we just need a program to go through and start removing these boats because they're kind of all over the place. There's even some huge big old dredger in in the sitting in <laughs> moored in the delta it's you know big tall crane thing you know and it's been there for for a long time it's all rusted out it's not worth anything so there's another angle to that chris too because of the lowering water levels in lake mead for example they've found some 50 boats already that have been submerged and now being been uncovered because the lowering water level and then <clears throat> they estimate there's there's up to a uh, up to uh, another 50 more that or 100 more that they haven't for a total of 150 that uh, that are still in the lake. Yeah, I think it's you know it, it's a real challenge. People get boats and they can't afford to keep them anymore. They can't sell them for much money. Uh, it's hard to sell anything. I think these days, anyways, especially if it's not in tip-top condition. So, you know, unfortunately, people, some people, just don't do the right thing. So maybe if we had a program where, if you didn't want your boat anymore and it wasn't worth anything, that you could just go turn it into a junkyard or something. You know, yeah. a recycler. I mean that that would be one way to stop people doing it. And then there's people that had the boats that were, you know, maybe moored at a dock and something happened and they they broke loose and you know who knows where they are and yeah they know. just said forget it yeah don't want to bother with it anymore. Well, we're talking about low reservoir levels and all that kind of a stuff. So <clears throat> I see that in California, Governor Newsom summoned kind of all of these um, uh, folks together, the water folks together, and said, hey, we still need to work. Even though water consumption is down, we still need to drive down urban water use oh, in, yeah. in California. Um, I didn't see anything in that. I read that article with, with beady eyes to see, to see if there was anything about ag use in, uh, in that, but there wasn't. It was all focused on urban water use. You, yeah, well, um, Newsom's mandates do apply. He's talking to urban water agencies. I mean, the thing about agriculture, agricultural water use, and you know, they the the governor can't mandate farmers use twenty percent less water. Uh, I mean, it 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 just it just gets hard when you really start thinking about how do you apply that. How do you, first, how do you know they're using 20% less water? And if a farmer buys transfer water to transfer water to his property, uh, is he supposed to use 20% less of that? And if he does, where does it go? Uh, you know, the thing that really uh, 
controls how much water uh, farmers are going to use are the water allocations they get from the water project. Sure, yeah. And and most farmers are not getting anything this year. So there's no water for them to save um, in terms of surface water. I think, Chris, that, uh, you know, the people I talk to about this or call me up on the phone, we have conversations. They understand the um, the fact that the state water board, you know, the conservation emergency that they that they put in, into effect is for um, urban urban water use. But many people kind of ask me that they, they kind of have trouble getting their arms around stuff. I mean, they they see the numbers, but it's hard to quantify it if you don't see them all the time or you or you don't understand it. I mean, you know, we use millions of acre feet of water for urban water use. And then they see something, well, we know we're saving 150,000, you know, acre feet or 250,000 acre feet. And, you know, that's going to represent what, you know, 78,000 houses used in a year or something like that. It's really hard for a layman to understand how how that water savings is quantified. I I don't know if there's an easier way to do it, Chris. Well, I I think the the really only way you can do it is that some of these uh, water agencies now have apps and they have software that shows you how much water you're using, gives you a gallons per day calculation, and even compares you uh, oftentimes to similar sized properties in your neighborhood. Um, if you don't have something like that, it's really hard to know. I mean, I'll tell you, I have no idea how much water we use around here. We're, we're trying to use less, and yeah. we've let we've let the grass go in the back, uh, in our backyard, keeping the we're watering the trees, but not the grass. Um, you know, so I'm sure we're using less. You know, and also we moved here. We haven't even lived in this house a year, so how do we? <laughs> what do we measure again? Yeah, I don't know. Right, uh, right. But I, I have no idea. Um, you know, I I just try and use less water, and we've agreed not to water the back lawn, which is kind of expensive, which should then, you know, keep the water use low. But, yeah, uh, it's really hard. Has the water agency got with you and, and given you a, a water budget for how many people live in your house, for your square feet, for your... You know, all yep. that stuff. We don't have that up here. And actually, huh. um, you know, uh, unlike other agencies, uh, we're a, a, an investor-owned utility for our water. It's Cal Water. Um, and I, you know, water agencies that are, or water purveyors, I should say, that are investor-owned, uh, operate under a whole nother uh, system. They operate under the California Public Utilities Commission. And, you know, whereas the state water board, I think, you know, regulates more of the public water agencies. Now, they still have to meet drinking water standards and those things that are set by the water board. But I don't know how these new water conservation regulations are going to roll out to investor-owned utilities. That's where they're going to set uh, like a water budget for each property. Uh, and and the state has done a lot of work on this. They've they've like surveyed, they've used satellites to survey all the properties to see how big they are because they're going to set an indoor water standard based on how many people are living there, as you say, 
and an outdoor water standard based on the size of the lot and roll this up into a, a, a figure that the water agency can can look at and use that to reduce water use. So people theoretically in the future won't be asked to conserve 20%. They'll be asked to reduce their outdoor water use or something along those ways, and they'll be able to measure that. Um, but I'm not sure how that's going to work for investor-owned utilities, because those are regulations coming from the state water board, and investor-owned utilities are regulated by the California Public Utilities Commission. So I don't know how that. Well, I guess that's Chris something I, I ought to figure out, huh? Yeah. I know Chris and I, a couple of years ago, were talking to uh, entities that developed the software to do that, where they could even tell you, uh, you know, they can mark out your property and they, and they can tell you where all the sprinkler heads are or whatever it is. And, and that would help that. But I don't know. I'm sure it's gotten more advanced in the last two years than, than, than we, what we saw. Uh, I think that's a I think that's a great idea. Um, well, the problem yeah. is that, you know, the, these mandates, you know, tell Newsom tells everybody to save 15%. And of course, you know, setting aside the fact that it's really hard to know what's 15%. Um, you know, there's a lot of water agencies said, you know, we've implemented projects and we've been doing things to, you know, sort of uh, buffer the shortages to our customers. We've invested <clears throat> money for, you know, groundwater recharge and whatever. And so, you know, we don't want to have, we shouldn't have to ask our customers to cut back. We've been making these investments. Um, or, you know, I, I believe it was uh, the county of Riverside, actually not in the last drought, uh, filed a lawsuit because they said, you got to cut back your water use, but their groundwater basin is, is fine. Uh, they didn't feel that they had that they needed to cut back that they had plenty of water, and you know these are all realistic. Um, you know these are real issues with with this blanket. You know everyone saves water. What if you already saving water? What if you converted your lawn to uh, you know drought resistant lawn covers in the last drought, and you've got all your water efficient appliances and so you're really super water efficient are, are you supposed to cut back even more when other people aren't i mean it's really it's it, it you know they, we talk a lot about in california water you know one size does not fit all and i think that's very true also in terms of localities you know, you're going to use more water in the hotter desert. If you live in the Bay Area, you're going to use less water. As a matter of fact, if you live in the Bay Area, chances are you don't have a yard if you live in San Francisco. Or if you do, it's very small. So your capacity to cut back water is you don't have as much if you have no yard and it's just indoor water use versus if you have a large yard like us and say, okay, we just want water, you know, the backyard. Um, so it's, it's, it's hard. No, no, it's just, it's just like the rules that uh, the water board makes, um, where, where they where they tell you uh, you have to install certain things and you can't put spray heads more closer than 18 inches from the the hardscape and all that kind of stuff, and you have to achieve you know all the, all these <clears throat> all these uh, flows rates and things. But I understand that from when they build a home, 
And but what happens when you sell a home? There's no regulation. You know, say say somebody lives in a home five years or fifteen years or twenty years. There's no regulation that says it has to go back and meet the original condition of of that met that standard. And they don't have the people to do that. I, I don't know how that's going to work. I was always my big big thing against that in those committees, mm-hmm. saying, "Great, it's great that you tell everybody they got to do it when they first put it in." But even like when they did the testing with smart controllers years ago when they first came out, you know, they they put them in, they tested them for three months, six months, a year, and then after that, they never went back and checked them. And and I know I, I, I mentioned many times on the show, uh, Las Vegas, uh, Southern Nevada Water did something like that. And, and they said the results were terrible after a year. Yeah, because nobody came back and checked it. Nobody made sure, you know, the uh, people at homes were, were touching the dials and changing what was already programmed. So, you know, it's all it's all well and good to have those intentions to do it when you first start. But there's nothing that maintains it forever. And that's, that, I see, is the problem. So yeah, you can see and, it, and when you change over your landscaping to drought-tolerant landscaping, you know, it's important to understand what the water requirements are in you know for those plants and to not overwater them the people get you know low low water use plants but they water them like they water everything before you know sometimes the biggest problem in some years past i've heard it said in southern california is overwatering <laughs> you know people watering too much yeah. uh, and, you know, you need to change your habits if you yeah, change your landscape. Tell, so I can tell you at my house, we've lost quite a bit of plants. Um, we said, you know, we have a lot, we have everything is on drip. But it's so hot here from, you see, from 112 to 116, uh, the plants can't tolerate that. <laughs> and no matter what you pour on them, they're just getting burnt. <laughs> yeah, I know. I can I can further that for you, Rob, because here personally at my house, this is that we just got our bill for the first full month of uh, water conservation because I stopped watering my lawn. I got a fairly large lot, about a half an acre. You've been here, Rob, you know. So compared to last year, our water consumption by CCFs, which is their measure, right, 748 gallons per CCF, was down significantly. However, the price, the cost of my bill was not down proportionally to my water <laughs> use because well, yeah. rate. And that's the problem they have every time there's a, uh, uh, you know, a drought because they got to maintain their operations. That doesn't go away. <laughs> so they just yeah. charge them more. And the yeah, same thing with non-potable water. You know, I always used to say years ago, people thought I was crazy that oh, we're going to use non-potable for the parks and all that. That's a great idea, but but non-potable water is going to be expensive too. It's going to go up in price. Yeah, and people you know, we'll start wanting to use that water for something else too, you know. To to you know, it's great to to use it to water parks and everything. It also means you have to you have to build the pipes to take it out there. Yeah. You know. And and if you don't put it in when you build the the new homes, uh it's too it's gonna cost you ten times the price. So anyway, go ahead, Chris. Nope, we're up against the uh Commercial break, Rob. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, Miss uh, Austin, we appreciate you coming on every single week, and we love reading your stuff. But we we love being a, a, a sponsor of, of you and and a subscriber to your newsletters every day. Uh, like I said, it's the first thing that comes on my computer every single morning. So we do appreciate it, and we want to thank you for joining us this week. We will talk to you again next week, and we want you to have a great week. And uh, 
Stay dry. <laughs> All right. Yeah, you too. And we'll talk next week. Good evening, everyone. Take care, Chris. All right, we'll be back in just a minute. We have featured guests and talk about something about with the Navajo Nation Indians and what they face with water. So stick around for the second half, and we'll be right back. KCAA Loma Linda, 1050 AM, 106.5 FM, and now 102.3 FM. Satisfying your customers, it's a full-time job. Want an easy way to make them happy? Try having your ornamentals delivered straight to the job site with Nursery Direct. Could save you and your clients a pretty peony. Think about it, instead of driving to the nearest nursery, picking up the order, and then driving to the job site, your crew's able to begin work right away. That cuts time and labor. Savings you can pass on to your customers, and you can get your plants delivered direct, even if you don't have a nursery branch in your area. Here's another quick tip. Keep a substitutions list on standby for every project so your team knows what to do in case a plant isn't in stock because there's nothing customers appreciate more than a project that finishes on time and on budget. They love you. They really love you. Aww. If you knew there was a pipe cement that works better than the one you're currently using, is better for you and the environment, and costs the same or less, would you buy it? Well, no-brainer, right? Weldon, the trusted leader in solvent cements for over 60 years, is pleased to introduce a new line of solvent cements that does all that. Introducing the Eco-Series line of solvent cements for PVC piping systems. Not only does it work great and set fast, it also has 30% lower solvent emissions and less smelly fumes, a better workplace environment when you're installing pipes. But don't just take our word for it. Eco-Series products are the only solvent cements that are Green Seal certified for environmental innovation for effective performance, improved working conditions, and for use with potable water. Now available in a medium-bodied fast-setting blue formula, 905 Eco, and a regular-bodied fast-setting clear formula, 900 Eco. Pick up a can today from your local distributor and see, smell, and feel the difference, just like Joe Sweat, president of Sunrise Irrigation, did. He said, after using Weldon's 905 Eco, we immediately noticed the application was smooth and there was noticeably less odor than other blue solvent cements on the market. The guys love it. To learn more about Eco solvent cements from Weldon, visit the website at www.weldon.com or call the Technical Service Hotline at 877-477-8327. That's 877-477-8327. K.C. A. A. All right, uh, welcome back to the second half of the uh, Water Zone show with uh, Chris Davey and myself, Rob Stark. Hope everybody's having a great afternoon or great evening, depending where you are in the country or maybe uh, in the middle of the night somewhere across the world. Anyway. Chris, you know, um, one of the things that uh, I, I did in my travels uh, going to different states and stuff and had the opportunity uh, to go visit some Navajo uh, reservations in different parts of the country. But, you know, the yeah. water challenges are serious for the Navajo Nation, including yeah. one, one in, and I didn't realize this, but one in three families lacking running water, impacts of climate change and straining the land and legacy pollution tainting some of their sources. But mm -hmm. the spirit of resilience and leadership from within 
are steadily leading the Navajo Nation toward a more sustainable future. And I think that's, you know, a lot of, a lot of us don't know, just like the, the uh, interview we had with the city of Jackson uh, and uh, how, how bad things are in, in 2022. And they're, they're suffering where they, they have to boil their water and maybe they only get water once a week or something. That's pretty terrible. So we have, uh, we have uh, two people we're, we're inviting onto the show to talk. Uh, one, one person, his name is Emma. Robbins, and she's the executive director of the Navajo Water Project at the Dig Deep. And then um, she's bringing on a lady named Crystal Cordova, and she's the uh, doctor, actually, PhD, principal hydrologist at the Navajo Nation Department of Water Resources. So um, they're going to have a little discussion. They work together uh, in different different organizations, but uh, we'll get a kind of a clear understanding of what's happening and how, how is the Navajo Nation responding to this? Because they're not getting a lot of help from the outside, so they they have to create it from within their own people. So uh, let, let's uh, let, let Emma go ahead and start. I am Emma Robbins, and I am the guest host for this episode. I am the executive director of the Navajo Water Project with Dig Deep Water. We work with communities on the Navajo Nation to help them get safe running water in their homes. I'm also the founder of the Chapter House, an indigenous art space in Los Angeles, and I'm an artist making work about issues we face on the Navajo Nation, but also solutions. Today I'm interviewing Dr. Crystal Tuli Cordova. Crystal is a principal hydrologist with the Navajo Nation Department of Water Resources. She plays a huge part in managing and protecting those water resources on the Navajo Nation and has been working day and night since the beginning of the pandemic to make sure that our people are getting water at a time when they need it more than ever. I personally have had the honor to work with Crystal for the past couple of years, and I feel like it'd be an understatement if I said that she was a hero of mine because she's so much more. Welcome. Thank you, Emma. I'm so excited to be here today and have this conversation. Is there anything else that you want to add before we jump into our questions? Yeah, definitely. Uh, so in our introduction uh, as the NEP people, we start with that to uh, create kinship. So she'e crystal tuli cordova yanishye twidich itni nishle katne zahni bashish chin hashk an hedzohe edashe che tuo heglini edashe nale besto klijindesh gij de nasha. I, and I just introduced myself. I said, I am of the Bitterwater clan, born for the Tangle People clan. My maternal grandfather's clan is the yucca fruit strung on a line. And my paternal grandfather's clan is the water that flows together. And I represent a community in the central part of the Navajo Nation called Blue Gap, Arizona. And my mom's side is from uh, on the New Mexico side from near Tuflagai or Whitewater, uh, New Mexico. Thanks for saying that, Crystal. You mentioned establishing kinship, and you and I are related because we both have Hachkan Hadzoche. Um, my clans are Bilagana Nishle, Hachkan Hadzoche, Bashishchin, Bilagana Dashache, Ado, Nakaidr, and Dashinale, Toran Estizite, Nasha. So, um, Crystal and I are both banana girls or yucca fruit strung out on a line. So, Crystal, I feel like that's been really helpful in how we work together and sometimes how we work with other people on the Navajo Nation by establishing that kinship. And that leads me into something that I come across when I'm working on the Navajo Nation, and I know you do, is how to make sure that we are incorporating our traditional ways in how we work. Because I feel like 
it's very hard to keep things where it's strictly data and strictly planning, but we constantly need to think about how we are going to incorporate our Dinek culture. How do you see that coming into your work, working with the tribe and with water, and how does that play out you know, in your everyday life or projects overall? Yeah, uh, so in the Navajo Nation, there is a strong uh, sense of traditional culture and traditions. And within that is the philosophy of Ahwajit Ego and Twa'e'inat'e, meaning um, that Ahwajit Ego in English uh, describes, you know, being self-reliant and self-sufficient. But when you really begin to think about it, you know, as that relates to water, it's important to think about not only ourselves as humans, but also thinking about all of our water uses when we begin to think about our, our water uses and our water needs and think about others that may rely upon uh, the water resources and within the Navajo Nation. So it's important to have a holistic approach when considering uh, water planning and design as well as construction because you begin to you know, have respect for those things uh, such as those who have, may have come before you and thus we have the right of way um, protocol that we have and to be able to ensure that things are taken care of in a respectful manner and as well as considering things, you know, that other water developers wouldn't necessarily consider like when Uh, For example, being in a drought and the need for water access, not only for water haulers uh, that may be hauling water for their domestic use purposes, but also to be able to haul water uh, for their livestock and agricultural uses. Thank you for that. I think it's something that's really important to share with people in terms of how things work specifically on the Navajo Nation. Oftentimes, the questions that I get in my job are, it, it feels like people are looking for a really simple answer when I personally feel like there is no simple answer on the Navajo Nation. Everything is complicated and that roots back to things like our relationship with the federal government, um, working with treaties, working with water rights and whatnot. What do you think is one of your biggest challenges in the work that you do? You partner with so many agencies and you collaborate with so many people. Um, what are some of the challenges? Some of the challenges that we have within the Navajo Nation um, are related to the technical capacity to be able to do the work and also the resources needing to do it. So the Navajo Nation spans over 27,000 square miles from across Arizona, New Mexico, and Utah. And when you consider the size, it's similar in size to West Virginia, or if those of you are familiar with international uh, countries, uh, similar in size to Ireland. And when you begin to think of a place that big and you begin to think about spanning over multiple states and spanning across different watersheds, especially in the West where water is a limited resource, it it, it becomes a challenge um, associated with the limited uh, capacity and resources that we have. But through partnerships, we're able to Uh, better access opportunities and address these challenges. Uh, We do have some legacy challenges associated with past uranium mining and through partnerships, there are cleanup efforts to be able to address that. In addition to that, we have um, 
challenges associated with brackish water. So total dissolve uh, or really salty water um, in some of the southwestern, western parts of the Navajo Nation through partnerships with academic institutions where exploring technologies to be able to address these challenges. In addition, uh, Emma had mentioned the water access uh, group that we are part of called the Navajo Nation COVID-19 Water Access Coordination Group, where it's a collaboration of different partners, including federal, state, academic institutions, non-governmental organizations, nonprofit organizations, to be able to bring water to people uh, during the pandemic. We have a high population of residents within the Navajo Nation that don't have pipe water, and it's important uh, when you're experiencing a pandemic to be able to have water, especially when there are recommendations given to be able to mitigate uh, COVID-19 challenges by being able to wash surfaces more often or washing our hands more often. And when you begin to think of water haulers who have limited water available, um, for their uses because they don't have pipe water, then you begin to understand some of the challenges that we within the Navajo Nation have. And I mentioned our large area that we cover. In addition to that, we have some challenges associated with uh, unresolved water rights. We do have some water, uh, resolved water rights in a, a few areas in New Mexico, San Juan, and more recently uh, with the uh, um, Navajo Utah Water Rights Settlement Act, and we do have unresolved water rights within Arizona. So it's important for us to consider these challenges, but also consider the opportunities that lie within these challenges. Crystal, I love the last thing that you said, because I think as Native peoples and as Navajos with a population of 30% on the Navajo Nation who don't have access to clean running water in their homes, we can be painted as people who are abject or who have problems and can't solve them. But one thing that you mentioned and that I really admire about your work is we're searching for solutions. And it's not just, oh, there's this problem, we can't do anything. It's really important that we work on it and people of our generation. What would be a piece of advice that you could give to people who would want to come back to the Navajo Nation and work and do what you're doing? Yeah, definitely. So the piece of advice that I would give to people who have a desire to give back to the community that they may come from is to be able to um, have dedication to the work that you do and don't uh, deviate from some of your upbringings. Oftentimes, uh, some of our challenges, we want to forget those challenges and uh, move forward past them. But often those challenges are what provided me the opportunity to be able to come home. So I grew up in a home without running water. Uh, we had to haul water for all of our water use. And, you know, some of my earliest memories as a child includes being able to see the water heating up on the stove in a kettle and being able to pour that into a silver um container, which was our bathtub, essentially, uh, growing up as kids. And so that that was a challenge for me. And it's important to me to embrace that challenge, because through that challenge, I'm better able to create and um, 
work with the population of people that I would love for them to be able to have generations after them to be able to have the luxury of having pipe water and be able to have running water uh, so that they can be able to have more sustainability within their their water use lifestyle and more water security, not only for just any type of water, but safe drinking water. It's important to mention future generations, like you said, because I think in the United States, there's this culture where we're constantly thinking about the right now and how it affects us in the immediate. So I love that you're thinking about that and that you said that. Um, Speaking of family and growing up, you have a fabulous sister that also does a lot of things in terms of the water world and STEM and science and working on the res and academia. You have such an amazing academic background, and I also really admire that. Can you talk a little bit about what it's like to work with your younger sister? I'll also say I have a sister and we work together in a lot of ways in the art world and with the indigenous arts org that I run. So I'm interested to hear how it is with you. How do you like it? I really enjoy it. Um, so I have two younger sisters and uh, we work within the STEM field and it was great because oftentimes people would not know who they were talking to, but we were so, um, into one another's work that we knew it in depthly to where you know we could politely say that oh actually I'm I'm not Nikki Tooley I'm Crystal but yeah she's doing amazing things with her work with NASA uh, being able to use some satellite uh, work I talked about building capacity and so through these other partnerships that we have we're able to do things uh, using the new technology that is available meaning um, through the drought severity evaluation tool that was created for the Navajo Nation through a collaboration with NASA, as well as the Desert Research Institute uh, through Climate Engine. And so being able to use these type of resources and then uh, going into other resources that are available, such as uh, OpenET is a great opportunity to be able to have better understanding of you know, what these tools that can become available to where, you know, those, I mentioned the limited uh, technical capacity and resources, and through these partnerships, we're able to build our uh, capacity while also uh, increasing the resources. Uh, I mentioned that we have a high number of population of people that don't have running water. And so our priority is to get water to the people. Uh, but we are also equally concerned about having uh, greater understanding about our water characteristics, whether that be above the surface or below the surface. And being able, uh, although we that's um, not our priority currently with allocating our funding towards, uh, through these partnerships, we're able to do that. And I was a, a PhD student at the University of Utah. And through those partnerships, I was able to bring in more resources and be able to quantify precipitation across the Navajo Nation, uh, having a better understanding of the hydroclimatic regions across the Navajo Nation, uh, while also having a better understanding of a precipitation source of our bimodal precipitation source, the North American monsoon. And so it's great to have uh, younger generations being able to 
gain uh, their education because that's something that we were taught and that's a part of Alpha Ego becoming self-reliant is also having these young Dines scholars being able to contribute whether whether or not they live on or off the reservation. They're using their different capacities at academic institutions, at um, federal agencies, state entities, as well as through non-governmental organization. And it's really a great way to see our budding generation of people give back to the Navajo Nation. I didn't realize that you had two younger sisters. I have two younger sisters too. So I'm learning everything about you always. Um, what about, do you have any plans for running for Navajo Nation president coming up? I'm just kidding. I'm joking, but like I'm literally like, every time, no, every time I, I get off a call with you, I'm texting my family and I'm like, man, Crystal really has to run for the Navajo Nation president. But with that being said, what's it like to be a Diné woman and step into the role of leading your community and working in this sphere? Because I feel like as someone who works in the wash sector, and with people like engineers or hydrologists, I feel like it can be very male dominant. So how do you navigate that? Do you experience it? And how do you bring in um, what it means to be a strong Diné woman since we are a matrilineal culture? Yeah, my opportunity was going through internships to where I was the minority of the minority, either a, a female or being a Native American in the field that I was in. Uh, so I, I had an early interaction with that. Um, but coming home is different to where, you know, it's a matrilineal society and being able to have embrace that identity within myself, um, because within that identity also comes this nurturing aspect and wanting the best for the people, the best for the communities, the best for the Navajo Nation, and being able to have that uh, nurturing, caring, uh, concerned nature that a mother or that a sister or that a grandmother uh, or a daughter has um, is, is different in our society to where, you know, it's important uh, that we carry on our lineage through our clan system, which is through the mother's side of the clan, but also to consider uh, the, the opportunities that we have to be a female, because it's also about growing the next generation. And as uh, a mother, as a daughter, as a sister, as an auntie, and soon, you know, as a grandmother, it's important to think about what type of teachings you're passing on to the next generation. And often, you know, we want to be the change that we wish to see in the world. And how do you do that? And you do that within the walls of your own home by being able to rear up children uh, that you would be proud of. And that I am the person that I am today because of my parents, because of my grandparents on both my mother and father's side. And they would always remind me, you are a, a representative of our family in the community. And so we expect nothing but good things to happen um, for your life because you will represent us well. And having that high expectation is definitely something that I wake up and try to live up to every day, 100% and beyond. Thank you for that. 
I'll also say you are a very nurturing person and I love that balance of you. You know, I've worked with you in this capacity, but we've also spent time together outside of it. I just want to tell you that I'm wearing the earrings that you gave me today. So you are very thoughtful and thinking about that way. And I think that's something that a lot of people really need to incorporate in the way that they work in these fields, because it's not just about data. It's not just about planning, but it's also making sure that we're thinking of the people and that we're centering things around the fact that people need clean drinking water. Um, I have one more question. So what would you like to leave people with in terms of if there's anything they should know about the Navajo Nation, about water conservation, any and everything, what do you want to leave people with who are watching this? What I'd love to leave people with is to have an understanding that are that there are people like Emma and myself who are Navajo communities to bring uh, clean drinking water to Navajo residents and to be able to have an understanding that there are opportunities for collaboration. Um, there has been a unique history of the Neff people in the United States associated with, you know, the long walk and what that history of force removal looks like, as well as having an understanding of forced assimilation through boarding schools. And then, you know, having an understanding of where we are today and the advocacy that has allowed us to be here today. You know, it's it's our predecessors that have had the opportunity to be able to pave a pathway for us. And we are the corn pollen prayers of yesterday. And it's important to ha embrace that understanding because someone was thinking about a good future for us in our generation. And we um, have to be that seed for being able to continue the next generation and hoping for well things for them. And it's important to also consider that, you know, through these challenges, people are not just taking these challenges. And although it might not be in the media of all the things that are being done to be able to address this issue and decrease the number of homes that don't have pipe water, um, but that there's a team of people working on this day in and day out from sunup to sundown and even past beyond that to be able to secure water for not only for the Navajo Nation, but through for indigenous people throughout the United States. And it's through the partnerships with our allies that we're able to make great strides with having opportunities like the funding that has been identified um, under the CARES Act, under the American Rescue Plan Act, and under the in, uh, Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, and being able to have an understanding that there are these needs and that there needs to be a, an addressing issue of clean access, you know, neat, universal clean access uh, for clean water for tribes throughout the United States, as well as Alaska Native villages. And having this understanding can be able to create a better way of life for people, for them to have this basic necessity. Thank you for those eloquent words. Um, 
It's been such an honor to speak with you and I'm so lucky to be able to work with you and have this time, like I said, out of our regular meetings. And thank you, Travis and Waterloop for allowing us to have this. Crystal, Nana, thank you. Yeah, yes. Oh, uh, Emma, I just wanted to thank you for the work that you do as the executive director for the Navajo Water Project. It's been a great honor of mine to be able to show that gratitude that we uh, have as Navajo people for the work that you do. And I'm glad that you're wearing those earrings today because I think that's an important way of what we have as Navajo people too, to show gratitude and say, meaning many thanks for the differences that you're making in the lives of Navajo people. Thank you, Nadot, to you as well. Well, that was a good interview. Sorry, I was stuck on mute. <laughs> I didn't realize that. Uh, thank you, Chris, for pointing that out to me. Uh, that was a good conversation. And, and, and you know, it's amazing because they, they work at different places, but they work together on projects. And um, they have very good mutual respect for each other. And, and that's nice. That's nice to have uh, workers and, 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 and peers that they get along great. No, that's great. I mean, you know, uh, if only you and I could be that way. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but thumbs up to that if you can see my picture on the on the screen here. But yeah. <clears throat> you know, those there's there's just a ton of challenges out there, and this is one that's not insignificant at all, Rob. You and I have talked about it before on many occasions. You're now closer in place and in time as you, as you're in Arizona now to to uh, to those struggles that those guys are having there. Not not any less than they are at the, to the California tribes here, where uh, close oh, to us. The same but, in when I was there. Yeah, exactly. But there is, you know, there is um, there is a challenge. There is inequality. There is a difference in um, availability and the quality of that uh, available water. And those are things that really need to be addressed. I, I'm, you know, through this show, I've learned a lot more about the inequality and you never think of that kind of stuff you hear it you hear people talking about it but until you start diving into it and investigating then you find out why was this suppressed for so long yeah i don't i don't, really. I don't get that just yeah. like just like just like the one we did in, in jackson a couple of weeks ago where they talked about they yeah. get water yeah. once a week and they got to boil it and it's brown and yeah. that's disgusting and i can't see in, in, in a country of america that we're that way i i guess yeah. i won't get on my my speech stuff and political things, but, you know, we're giving all this money to everybody else in the world, but we don't fix our own place. Yep. Well, thumbs up to those guys, man. All yep. right. We're just about at the end here. So, Rob, what do we say every year to our listeners? Every please. month, every week. Yes. Please help keep our planet, planet blue. blue. All right. Well, thanks, thanks, everybody. everybody. We'll talk to you next week. Have a good week and uh, stay cool if you can. KCAA Loma Linda, 1050 AM, 106.5 FM, and